Coach Considerations from the UKSCA Views and Opinions from the World of Strength and Conditioning Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm really excited to be here. Uh, we were going to try to do this uh, back in 2017 or tw uh, 2018 or something happened and then again we tried to do it again where I could get over here and, and meet all of you and get a chance and then the pandemic happened. So anyway, I'm glad I'm here now and, and hopefully I make some sense for you. I've been asked to talk about developing a culture, especially in younger athletes from a a strength conditioning standpoint and and being an old school guy I see this a lot and I I do believe it's something we need to, to look about there's been a lot of talk uh, all through the day I've tried to be in a lot of different presentations and stuff and there's been a nice job of, of talking about how to be use innovation and technology and all those types of things for for me, and it really hit me a month or so ago, in the New York Times, uh, the CDC over, over in the States, the CDC was apologizing for how we handled the pandemic over there. And they said, our problem was is we, were, we were using data that was more for publication instead of using data that was actionable. And so that's the same thing that I look at when I'm trying to use different things is this data something I can take action with? Or is it just for looks? Or is it just for the points on the screen? And our younger generation doesn't believe that there's innovation unless it has a, some type of screen, some type of iPad screen or some type of uh, computer screen. That's the only way to be innovative. And again, the old, the old guy in me says, well, wait a minute, we can look at that a little bit differently. Because when we get back to just looking at movement and talking about movement and analyzing movement, when you look at most animals, or almost all animals besides us, whether they're going at a walk or a slower pace or af af whether they're really trying to get after it and go fast, they still mechanically move at the same areas. They move at the hips and the shoulder joints. And they just express that at different speeds or at different intensities, but that's how that works. But we're a little different. Now we know that when we're running well, whether it's distance runners or whether it's sprinters, when we're running well or whether it's somebody on the pitch or on the, on the court, good fast running, when that stance leg is hitting the ground, then the swing knee is either even or slightly ahead when there's good fast running. And you can see that there. When, when we're mid stance, that knee is already ahead so that all kinds of things can happen so we can negotiate the ground down from above instead of down from behind or down from in front, like when you're overstriding or understriding. And yet when we do a lot of different types of training, when we do a lot of different types of training, we get away from this piston at the hip and attack down from above and get into this pendulum action of just moving at the knee. For us, human movers, jogging is not the same as running fast. Shuffling is not the same as running fast. So if we don't, and sometimes all the data that we get off of a computer screen doesn't tell us anything about that. 
three people could have the same loads and same distances and same things, but some of them might be overstriding, some of them might be understriding, and some of them might be lucky enough to attacking the ground correctly from there. And yet, our youth do this pretty well when they're just playing. Because when they play and then when they run, and they're doing running things, they go for it. There's a tempo and a rhythm and a speed to it because they're having fun and they're going for it. So I tried to find a, a person in this picture that didn't have what we talked about in the piston mechanic part of this. And they're just playing and they're just having fun. So this is inherent in us as humans from the time we we're very tiny. And, and I've been analyzing this for a lot of years. We have different sports and different things where we let all the little kids come out on the field, on the baseball field after a game or on the track after a track meet. And I just watch them run. And it doesn't matter whether they got slippers on or funny little rabbit ear shoes on or, or uh, winter boots on. They're moving at the hip and attacking down from above. And then somewhere along the line, either puberty or, or what we do in school with them, making them sit in a, at, at a table at a computer with, with less hip mobility or the fact that we don't let them climb trees or we don't have playgrounds where they can climb around. Somewhere along the way, we start to lose this and we get into more of the pendulum at the knee. But the other part of this also is what we do as practitioners in terms of what transfers to that same kind of thing, type of thing. This has started to become a little bit of a, a thing for me as well. Uh, we're doing this with a lot of our different athletes now. This is, happens to be one of our soccer players or, or football, as, as you know it. So he's holding an iPad there that's giving some readouts. She's either abducting or adducting at the knees, she's laying flat on her back, she's nice and relaxed, feet are on the ground, and this is to help strengthen areas so that we have less groin issues, and we're better and stronger at being able to do lateral type of movements. And again, the old, the old guy in me, the old school guys, how does that transfer to really moving on the ground with the right posture, balance, stability, and mobility actions. If we want less groin problems, then we make sure we plant the foot underneath the hip and we push. We drive the knees apart. It's the same thing as what we just saw on the running forward. If I'm planting this foot and this knee is already at the other knee or starting to go in the other direction, then we're, not, we're going to be pushers. We're going to be able to drive the knees apart. We're not only going to go faster and quicker in and out of the cuts, but we're going to have less issues there. I still don't, I, I'm not smart enough to understand how that transfers better to what they need to do on a soccer pitch than what this does. But this isn't as innovative anymore. Just because I put, a I put some constraints bags out there and try to make them go fast through that, I don't think that's as innovative. Or if I just throw paper on the ground so that that's immediate feedback for their proper running mechanics. If the paper's a little slippery out in front, then they know they overstrided. If the paper goes flying back behind them, then they know they had too much backside mechanics, too much pendulum at the knee. But if the paper just stays there and they're barefooted, so they get immediate feedback on high speed, better running mechanics. 
no, no screen, no iPad, nothing to it. But it gives them, it, they take part in this. They all of a sudden are a student of what they have to do to be stronger, faster, quicker in that activity. So for me, sometimes we got to go back to the box that the fancy stuff came in. And when we go back to the box, then we can kind of reconnect with what helps us in real world stuff on the pitch and on the, on the court or on the track or those kinds of places. And for me, again, this is also going back to being physically educated. Not just physical educated as us, the coaches, as us, the practitioners, but the athletes themselves. When I showed the picture of the, of the little kids running, that education was already kind of inherent in their body. They didn't realize it in the mind, but they realized it in the body. The body knew how to move in a more educated manner. So I'm going to go back to an old physical education book that was put together. It was a, it was a, a complex of different uh, things in physical education way back in 1971. I wasn't, well, I might have, no, I wasn't coaching 1971 because I was a freshman in high school, but I probably was Little League Baseball or something like that. But for me, going back and looking at this stuff, and I just pulled out a few of the quips that they had on all the research that was being done at the time. And again, in those days, me being the old guy in the room, physical education was still a major thing in elementary school, at least where I was was growing up and in that part of the United States. And it was also definitely a part of things through middle school and, and um, secondary school. But it was called the very center of youth. It was to teach how to act, interact, and react. So it was more than just being educated on terms of how you handled yourself physically, but also how you handled, handled yourself and problem solving with yourself and the ground, with yourself and whatever other things, whether a ball or a net or those kind of things, but also problem solve within your own teammates or, or your opponents and those kind of things, how to react. It was the primary vehicle by which exploration or ex experimentation expand knowledge of oneself. And I'm going to highlight both exploration and experimentation, and also highlight vehicle. Because the reason I say vehicle is because it is about movement. It is about understanding how we move and how to move better, and that's the exploration experimentation part of it. But the movement, and, and as we know in therapy too, movement is the medicine. Getting movement better, better medicine. So I've showed this slide for a long, long time, and... And that's kind of an issue to be able to still show this for a long, long time. The athletes that come into us, if you're working in a, in a secondary school situation or like me in a university or college situation, the, the athletes that walk in the door or the students that walk in the door have these high percentage factors. A more sedentary lifestyle, poor nutrition, fast food diet, however you want to talk about it, improper running. So they went from that picture I showed of the little kids to not negotiating the ground very well, especially with the foot and the ankle. 
and whatever problems have arose from that, whether it's ankle problems, foot problems, shin, patellar tendonitis, low back, hamstring, groin, all those kind of things. We have a lesser physical education and torso structuring. And what I say mean by that is they're just doing things where we had better posture, hip mobility, balance, stability, those kinds of things. We've taken, at least over where I'm from, we've taken away the playground bars. No, those are dangerous. Can't crawl around on them anymore. Don't climb up in the trees. Don't, don't do those kind of things. So we've taken away those things that kind of helped us, that were inherent in us and how we move posture, balance, stability, mobility-wise. Yet, I'm not saying we're total couch potatoes. They have a high competitive age. They're competing now in all their different little youth sports and things like that. They're, they're competing, but their training age, or for me, even their just play age, which we can define a number of different ways a little later, their play age is still infantile. They haven't gone back to the box. They've just been in the, the fancy toy situation here. And the other part is, is we the coaches or the parents or however you want, we have also become the problem solvers for them instead of them having to do some of that themselves. So for me, it plays the thing. Stronger play, swifter play, higher play, how you like the play's the thing. But then the concepts of being physically educated, it provides an opportunity to learn from skilled teachers, that's us, and, and in, the strength in the strength conditioning community now, who, who else is it going to be? Okay. There's less PE teachers in the world today. Hopefully there's probably more over here, but I can tell, tell you that there's, there's only two states in the U.S. that actually have formal PE programs from kindergarten all the way through to 12th grade. And only one state makes it mandatory. So everywhere else it's just kind of an elective and it's not as, much as important as all these other things. But those were the activities that are invigorating, developmental, educational for all of us. Leads to physical, social, mental, emotional growth. Okay? All we hear about these days is this mental, these mental issues that uh, the young people are having today. And you, know, you can blame it on whatever you want, you know, all the social media, all those kind of things. But again, if we backtrack and we look at the problem solving within your own body, problem solving on a, on a field or on a court, or problem solving with a ball or a bat or these types of things, then all of a sudden problem solving other areas of your life are more likely. Again, to be physically educated for, for us, our objectives are simple. Be well organized, well taught, and developmentally appropriate. But they're experiences, they're appropriate experiences, they're, they're, they're weight training experiences, they're movement experiences, they're how to run, jump, sprint, throw, kick, all, all the things that went back to old school physical education. And they were, were well-rounded. They were open. You, you didn't just learn how to play basketball. You learned how to play volleyball. You learned how to, to swing a bat. You learned how to swing a tennis racket. What's the difference between a tennis racket and a badminton racket? All these different types of things. And they became highly positive because everybody was moving. You had to move your body. That felt better. And you had to stabilize your abilities so that you could improve.
and there was a systematic approach to it. There is, there is a systematic approach to it. The whole PE thing, the old school PE teacher thing was you taught whole, you taught the whole thing, then you broke it down to its parts, then you taught it whole again. That differential rehearsal that a lot of you use, different ways to, to focus on the finish, external focus mechanizing. So you're giving them things to externally focus because we know the research shows that that's better developmentally than if you're always internally focused on what's this muscle doing or what's that joint doing. And then using proper progressions. That's just being a physical educator, is progressing from simple to complex, easiest to more difficult. And you do it a lot of ways. You do it either by what you tell them, or what you show them, or how it feels for them, or how you manage the repetitions as they go. Quality repetitions versus just quantity repetitions. That's a systematic approach. But when you see the other things, then you see a symptomatic approach. Oh, this is, this is a problem? Well, let's just work on that. No, everything has a systematic and a synchronized approach to it. So you're probably wondering how I got so screwed up in my mindset on all this stuff. Well, there was a number of ways. But the first was when I was a little kid. I was about six or seven years old, and I had a I go over to my aunt's house, which was just only about four houses down, and my, and my cousin, who was quite a bit older than me, he was about 15 years older than me, he and his buddies would be back from college, and they'd be lifting weights out in the backyard. And so at six or seven years old, because I was always hanging out with them, wanting to be around them, they decided to teach me how to lift weights. And so the first exercise they taught me was a split snatch, the second exercise they taught me was a split clean and the third exercise they taught me was a split jerk and of course because I was splitting and they weren't coaches they weren't teachers they were just guys working out in the backyard but they said okay this is the way you're going to do it so I had to end up doing it both ways I couldn't I couldn't just split snatch to the common side I had to split snatch to the other side too split clean split jerk sometimes I could go both sides at the same time sometimes I had to go alternate sides but you know, I didn't, get to, I didn't get to do bench press and bicep curls when I first started, started learning weights. I did it this way, and it was awesome. And that's probably why I still do them today, and that's why I still coach the Olympic lifts as one of my main things, you know, for almost every athlete that walks in the door. It, it did mold me, and it made, it made it a lot of fun. And I had a lot of fun with it, and I was in control of my body in order to do it. I had to figure out how to gain more control. I had to understand how to get more control of those movements. Okay? I was getting educated, not even by people that were PE teachers or coaches. It was just some guys working out in the backyard that happened to be my relatives. But the other thing that was, help, that was happening there was this, also this perception of I was going to I was going to get strong, I was going to get better, but I could negotiate a lot of different things. And so later on in my research, I was doing all this summer research. I had a lot of subjects. I had a whole American football team. I had basketball players. I had track athletes. I had all these people. And over three summers, I was looking at what, what was the best stimulating type of 
action to get us better to pay. I was always looking for, okay, if we're going to stem lift for an evening game or different things like that. So over three different summers, I looked at all kinds of things. I was also looking at, you know, heavy loaded back squats because that's what um, Ben Johnson at the time, he was one of the best sprinters in the world and he was doing heavy squats before he'd do his 100, best 100 meter races. And we now know that Ben was doing a lot of different things at that time to, to be better. But I looked at that. I looked at I looked at squats, I looked at my snatches in different ways, I looked at uh, squat jumps with a sandbag, the, the Warren Young research where you have about 30% of your own body weight and you do single rep squat jumps. I looked at multiple rep uh, knee tuck type jumps, so elastic reactive type things, I looked at all of it. And what came out to be the best stimulant of all? Different types of snatch variations because you had to have load, just like in the squatting, but you also had to have speed. And not only did you have to have speed, just like in the elastic reactive jumping, but you had to have this synchronized, this synchronized coordinated action of, of putting everything all together. So not only was it a favorite thing for me as a, a little kid growing up, but then it became this thing that was necessary if I really wanted to stimulate better athletic performance as we got closer to game days and, and, and uh, competitions. So it's, again, it's this whole thing of negotiation and control. So now, what I don't know about over here if it's as big a deal, but over, <laughs> over there now, it started out in the NFL, and then it really took hold when some of the major college programs were doing it and first it was just football because of the sheer size and numbers but then everybody said hey this is a pretty cool thing is this assembly line training so especially these these teams and these programs these strength and conditioning programs that have lots of interns and things like that what they do is before the athletes even walk in the door everybody's already set up the platforms or the racks whatever it is and, so, and sometimes it's everything. It's a platform. The platforms are set up. The racks are set up. The benches are set up. And you've got the lighter weight benches and platforms here. And then they graduate in weight as they go here. And so when the athletes walk in the door, you just tell them where to start. Here we go. We're doing that. Boom. You succeeded. Okay. Move up a platform. Okay. Assembly line training. So they don't even have to think about how much it is, they, they know it's heavier, but they don't have to worry about that. They don't have to worry about their jumps. All that's taken care of for them. And they didn't have to set it up, put the weight on the bar, they didn't have to do any of that. And then when they're done, they grab their shake and they walk out the door and everybody else cleans up after them. And I have a problem with that. Because part of this whole deal is, is being a student of your, of your events, a student of your sport, a student of what we do with them and for them. There's a pride in that knowledge, knowing what to do, because understanding leads to control. Control over your own body, control over how you negotiate loads, jumps, weekly tonnage, and your reaction to when those things don't always go the right way or, or they go too easy or too. So there's, there's no participation in that. And even, and even when we don't do it, a lot of the athletes that are coming in the door, Coach, how much you want me to do here? What's the bar weigh again? Should I go up? Should I go down? 
This is, again, me not being a good teacher, if that's the case. Because one of the things we want to be able to do is have them, again, understand. What do you, Coach, what do you mean by total tonnage? Well, let's take your cleans. If last week you did three reps, your last, your last three sets of three, you went 100, 120, and 140, then if we add those up, 300, 360, 420, then you had a total tonnage of 1,080. But the next week, you got to try to improve on that. How are you going to do that? Not me telling you how to do that. How are you going to negotiate your loads, your jumps, and to have a better week of cleans than last week? It's the same sets, same reps, same style. So, okay, started off well. Went 3 by 120. Got it, just like you got it the week before. 3 by 130. Got it, just like you got it the week before at 140. But then you take a, a little too high a jump on the last set, and you don't get three. You end up missing it and only get two, and look what it does to your total tonnage. So after they've done this with a few different exercises over a few weeks, then all of a sudden, not only are they learning what kind of jumps are good jumps, but also what to do if you did. So week three should be a much better reaction to how you train smart, train hard, but train smart, make the appropriate jumps. But when you're doing assembly line training, you don't get any of that. So when they leave my program or our programs, what can they go do? Go ask somebody else? Or did we leave them with something that's educational in terms of how they're physically developing? And you've heard the old saying before, what are you going to do? You're going to feed them fish? Or are you going to teach them how to fish? And again, if we're really concerned about how they are going to be mentally as going forward, how they handle themselves uh, with less mental anguish and less issues and problems in overall life, then if they know how to fish, they're going to handle that better than if they're always expecting us to feed them the fish. And part of this all started for me a couple years ago, a few years ago now, I was reading an article in this, because uh, I, was, I was starting to work a lot more with ice hockey, and so I was reading an article in the Ottawa Citizen about specialization leading to a decline in basic athletic skills. Yeah, when you only play one sport, and that's the only sport you do from the time you're seven years old, then we, we know that those people have a tendency to be less or more injured and, and less robust by the time they get, because they're just a little bit... They haven't had the whole physical education unit to it. But this was actually an article by this NHL strength and conditioning coach where he was saying, you know, I only get to really be a strength and conditioning coach half the time. The other half of the time, I have to be a PE teacher. He says, I, I see such a lack of free play or a lack of a, uh, the ability to be free in how they conduct themselves. And so it's just a lack of physical literacy. And so if we look at the old school models of long-term athletic development, which is what, right, striving for improvement and the principle of appropriate training, right? This has been around for a long time, the whole learn to train, train to train, train to compete, train to win. But that bottom level is fundamentals, and notice I capitalized fun. The fun part of just like those little kids running. 
We didn't have to tell them to run faster. We didn't have to tell them to slow down, that type of thing. They were running, they were moving, and they were moving well because they were having fun doing it. And isn't that the art of what we do? Not just as, you know, yeah, you, you figured out that I started out as a PE teacher. But if you look at some of the greatest coaches we, that we ever know about, you know, over there, if you talk about John Wooden in basketball or the Bill Bowermans and Tom Telezes of track and field or the Vince Lombardi's, you know, football, even over here, the Eddie Joneses, they all started out as PE teachers also. And so the true art of what we do is kind of how would you coach skateboarders? If, now, now you know what I do at my semi-free time. I watch skateboarders. Because if you, if you watch them long enough, you see that there's a system to what they do. They're free, and they're trying all kinds of different things, but when one person tries it, whether they, whether they get it or whether they fail, the next person tries to do it and tries to do it a little bit better, and then they create something else, and all of a sudden there's this whole system to how they all improve in different types of skills and things like that. And I'm not saying, okay, let's let everybody do skateboard training the whole time, but the true art of what we do as teachers and coaches is how we st structure the training and allow free play to be a part of that. So that they, again, they have to figure out, maybe they have to create some of the rules for themselves and the guidelines of how they, they do it. They have, to, they have to go by some of that structure within themselves. So again, we're not taking them step by step. We're letting them figure it out because we've given them the direction to go. And I'm just going to end with this, because sometimes paving the way isn't necessarily fostering the pathway. Uh, I've always liked this picture and quote, the best teachers are those who show you where to look, but they don't tell you what to see. Thank you very much. How was I on time? Brilliant. Thanks, to Jim. We got... Extra time for questions. Fantastic. Anyone? No Either question. made no sense at all or okay. everything made sense. I'll check the app in a minute. I've got one in the meantime, Jim. Okay. So, oh, we got one. I'll come back to you. I'll just, I'll finish where I started. So, when, when we was in Oregon, the one thing I saw was you were wandering around the gym and there was guys working together in little groups and they had their little sheets of paper, they had their problems, but they were just doing it together. How, how, what, what, you come into a facility, your first day at work, how, what was your first thought of getting them into that <laughs> mindset? How did well, what, you, what's your... you caught us at a good time because it took me a lot longer than I thought it would take to get that culture. And, and part of it was we, we put them in, in groups of three or four usually. And so the whole idea was, and it was just a simple saying, don't let the bar get cold. So if there's four of us, that's our, you know, and, and again, like I've talked about, I do a lot of dynamic style lifting, but even if we were doing heavy squats or, or things like that, with three or four people, you go, I go, the third person goes, we change the weight, we go again. So that, that's the rest. So there's not a lot of time for la-di-da or, you know, going to the 
drinking fountain. Once you're in the workout, don't let the bar get cold. And so once they got that part of it, not only did their training go better, but just the whole ambiance and the, and the, the way that the weight room worked. Because I think if you saw, I had that mezzanine. The mezzanine was the warm-up. So we were on like half-hour switches. So one group starts at 8 o'clock, and by 8.12 or 8.13, they're down on the floor. Well, at 8.30, the next group was going, and then they're 12 minutes later, they're down on the floor. And, and, and that flow doesn't go very well unless you have some type of, hey, don't let the bar get cold, don't let, you, don't let the the work get messed up because that's what you do in game situation, right? In, in any type of game or contest, there's a certain rhythm and flow to it. And so we, I still do that all the time. Rhythm and flow is a huge deal when I'm working with team, team sports or teams. It doesn't matter if it's in the weight room, out on the court, or if we're doing summer conditioning out on the grass or whatever, there's a certain rhythm and flow to how we go. Definitely. So you had that little prep stage, and they came through, and they did their prep. They did the mobility. They go into groups. They go down into the lifting area. What about the finishers? You had the finisher area where they, there was always a. So yeah, and so, and again, this is this is this is old school lifting stuff that came from you know way back uh, Medvedev and, and the Russians and stuff like that. But you you have a general warm-up, you have your specific warm-up, so if it's in the weight room, it might be, you know, some type of good morning press squat to get yourself ready to whatever you're doing. Then you do your dynamic stuff first, then you do your heaviest stuff in the middle, and then you do your more isolated lay-down, sit-down stuff at the end. So if you noticed, the weight room was set up that way too. So once they came down from the, the warm-up area, they were in that area to do the specific warm-up. Then they could move to the area to do the world, you know, the cleans or the heavy pulls or whatever dynamic. And then they moved to the area where they might be squatting or lunging or something like that and so on and so forth. So the room was set up that way as well and still is from that standpoint. Yeah. Brilliant. Yes, sir. Thanks very much for the presentation there. Um, I'm just going back to your comment around assembly line training. What do you think has caused that? Is that a time... Oh, what, I'm sorry again. Um, back to the assembly line training. Yeah. Um, what has caused that? Is that a time management issue? Is it a dependency culture created by the coaches where, you know, the dumb athlete is dependent on you? Yeah, so I think it all started out with the non-strength and conditioning coaches, like the, the, either the football coaches or the basketball coaches, whoever they're saying, hey, we need to get them through there. We need to get them, get them in, get them out. You know, I don't see it as much with the smaller groups. Like when you only got 15 guys, it's not that big a deal. Uh, but when you've got 30, 40, 50 at a time coming through, then I, then, so I, I see the concept behind it. But again, Everything's got a balance to it. So the balance of, okay, you're getting them through a workout good, but what have you taught them? And, and how much investment did they have in the workout? You know, it's, it, it could be the same thing. If you're out on the, on the pitch and you're saying, okay, we're doing this drill, we're doing this drill, but they're not engaged in the drill. They don't know what the drill's for. They don't know how the drill transfers to, to game-like conditions. Then, then is that what we really want? And that's my other issue is I, I came into the strength and conditioning Field kind of by accident. 
I was an elementary school PE teacher, football, basketball, track, baseball, and wrestling, and I, and I ran the weight room for all those sports. So I always came at it from a coaching mindset and not kind of like this other mindset. So again, why am I having them do these exercises and how do these exercises transfer to playing better on whatever, wherever it is, the pitch or the court or the track or that type of thing? And so, and again, I don't think it started that way, but then once some of those major, you know, in the U.S., if the NFL does it, then everybody's going to do it, whether it's the, you know, well, they do it. Yes, is that, do we want to do it because they do it or are they doing it because it's the right thing to do? So, and, and so it's, and it's trickled down. And then once like the Alabamas and the Tennessees and those places started to do it, now all the high schools are thinking about doing it and that type of thing. And, and then we're, and again, we're using, we're losing that ability to have our youth be more educated. And so then what are they going to do when they become coaches? They're going to make it, they're going to water it down even more. And so, and there's, where's your culture go from that? So. Thank you. And if it's, Do you have any advice as to how to make a strength and conditioning co program more fun? <laughs> yes. Because I, I, I do believe even the laziest athletes I've ever worked with, and I've worked with some pretty lazy ones, if, if, you, can make it, if you can make the challenges fun in some way, so there, it's not a degrading challenge or things like that. It's, but again, it's this whole concept of, of figure it out, right? Do I feel better about my tree fort because I built it or because my dad built it for me? If I built, even if I broke some nails and, okay, some, <laughs> some wood fell out and, oh, my God, I, didn't, I, had, I made some mistakes, but it's still my tree fort. And so... If I can give them challenges, like you got to figure out, and that's the beauty of some of the more synchronized and dynamic lifts, is you teach them a clean or you teach them a snatch, and then you say, break it down into parts. But then you just say, figure out how to get the bar from below your knees to over your head in one move. How are you going to do that? And they're like, aren't you going to tell me? No, I want you to figure it out. And then when they figure it out incorrectly, then you give them a little cue or a little tip that helps them a little better. But then all of a sudden, it's theirs. It's not mine. It's theirs. And, and so even though that was a challenge, and even though they really didn't want to do it, all of a sudden, they've accomplished it, and it becomes more fun. So their likelihood of coming in and trying it a little better the next time and the next time. And then the other thing I see is, is there's a whole lot of individualization, and that's great. But when you're doing stuff with your teammates, just like anything out on the pitch or on the court, that makes it more fun. Also, so, and I'm all for, you know, okay, so, so-and-so, Susie's not going to be able to do all the things that Sally's going to be able to do, so I've got to modify some things, but they can still do most of the training together, and they can still work together on that, because they like working together and that type of thing, and so, but if I always have, okay, Susie, you're going to go over here, and you're just going to do all this therapy stuff, and, and Sally, you're going to go ahead and go for it here, then all of a sudden, it's not as much fun for either of them. And so I'm still, again, old school guy. When I have a team, I like that whole team to go. And, and, as, he, and as he witnessed, they'll, 
they'll get in and they'll get after it. And then even the ones that are like, ah, oh, I didn't really want to do this today. But everybody is, so here I go. And when I have them coming in one-on-one, -on -one, and okay, I'm going to just kind of take you through these, these, these deals, then it doesn't become as much fun, for, at least for the team sport people. From that. But even, so I mostly work with track and field now. You know, that's my largest group, which is really an individual sport, but we train as a team. You know, the, the sprinters train together, the throwers train together, and, it, and they have fun doing it that way, especially if I can do the right challenges for them. So I hope that answered the question. So. Any of us? Just on that then, if, if you, no, just on that one, if you've got it as in a team, you've got your high performers, you've got your the guys that love training, that they want to be S&C coaches if they fail as athletes, you know, they love the gym, and then you've got your slackers. Do you, as a coach, do you chase the slackers, or do you push the high performers? I'll, I'll always cater to the people that are going to do the work. I'll always cater to the people that want to get better. Doesn't necessarily mean they're the elite people, you know, because some, some coaches, some of my coaches will even tell me, I oh, don't worry about those guys. Just take care of these guys. They're going to score all the points for us. I don't do that. Anybody that wants to be training and wants a little bit of my expertise, they got it. And if you don't, that's fine too. But you still got to be in the room and you still got to do the stuff. And so I, have, I, I may have a tendency to put them, not to, lag, not, not to bring the other people back down, but I may have them go with some of these people that are real into it and gun ho about it. And if that doesn't work, then we, we work it a different way. But yeah, and, I, and you're always going to have that, right? Normal curve of of athletes, ones that you don't have to, you don't even have to be in the room. They're going to get it done. And then the others, if you're not in the room, they're not going to be in the room. So, Excellent. Okay, one, one last one. Just wanted to make you run, mate. Uh, Jim, just, just, you've been in the game for, for longer than some people in the room have probably been, you can say it. I've been, been doing it. But uh, what keeps you motivated? And, and also, what do you look for for continuing to develop as a coach? Well, this has been great. I, I, I always get more than I, than I give at these things. I've, I've been writing all kinds of notes today, and, and, I'll, and I'll fill up that book tomorrow as well. What, what keeps me in it, because, yeah, I, I get asked all the time. I could have retired a long time ago. But it's still the, the athletes. I still have fun working with the athletes. And... And you'd think there'd be a huge generation gap because I don't do TikTok and I don't do any of that other stuff, you know, and I don't have a Twitter account or none of that. But when we're training together, when, when we're out on the field, summer conditioning and, you know, we're doing hill sprints or whatever, the interaction's still great. I have fun with them, you know, and it's in the same thing. I, I, it's going to be a quick flight back Sunday, but Monday morning I have... Four groups go that morning, and I'll be excited about it, and hopefully they will be too. So. Absolute wise words. Golden rule to finish. So well, big, uh... I'm going to add one more thing. I've also gotten to the point now, at least at the university, where all I have to do is coach. All I get to do is coach. 
I don't go to meetings anymore. I don't pick up the phone if I don't have to. I, don't, I just get to coach. So hopefully you all get to that sometime. <laughs> Coach considerations from the UKSCA. Views and opinions from the world of strength and conditioning.